All right. We are live. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm joined by Jacob Shapiro. We are going to be talking about Russia, Ukraine, what has happened, the financial implications, uh, what's going on on the ground. Uh, Jacob, I know, I know you've got a very complicated, you know, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where, where, what, what's the name of your company again? Sure. Uh, I'm director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments um, and also the chief strategist at Perch Perspectives. And um, if you can't get enough of me in those locations, I write a monthly column for the guys at Lycaon. Well, uh, thank you for that, Jacob. Since we last spoke, there's been a lot of news. I think on Friday was the day, Jacob, where the, the huge surge in the, pr the price of oil relented. Uh, it seemed like the sanctions that had been announced on Tuesday when we spoke previously, they didn't have a lot of teeth to them. I think perhaps in that call, you said that you know, they were like a six out of 10. And it's like the, the market had agreed um, to you. Uh, over the weekend, though, there was a lot of news. How about you catch us up on, on what happened over the weekend? And, and then we can get into the military progress. Sure. I mean, so much has been happening that it's like all, all these days feel like um, like like they're weeks and in, in, in and of themselves. The the Lenin quote that I feel like everybody's been saying, but I'll say it too, is that, you know, sometimes there are years where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. And um, it definitely has felt like every day is like is another decade. So if, if we go back on a week timeline, um, I think the most important thing, well, there are a couple of very important things that have happened over the course of the past week. The first and most important is the way Germany has done a complete and total 180. Um, because German foreign policy, and I think Putin was expecting that Germany was going to be relatively friendly towards Russia going forward. That has not been the case. And not only that, you know, Germany is talking about spending an extra 100 billion euros on military armaments. It's talking about building LNG terminals very quickly. That was a major move. Um, the second thing, though, is just, just that the Russian invasion in Ukraine continues not to go well. Um, the, they have not been able to really make any progress around the capital city of Kiev. Um, they have made some progress in the south coming from Crimea, but then they're also you know, bombing Ukrainian cities. I guess the goal there is to intimidate the Ukrainian resistance into deteriorating, but it's having the opposite effect. In some ways, it's actually making voices, particularly in the West, more suspicious of Russia going forward. Um, and I guess the last thing we should note is that as we're recording, um, you know, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators are meeting for the second time since this war started off. I, I wouldn't expect too much to come out of that, but they did meet once before. And, you know, if, if you're a if you're a naive, doe-eyed optimist, maybe you think that there is some way to come down from all of this. But unfortunately, I think where we are right now is um, Russia, the Russian military seems to be coiling um, and trying to fix all of its mistakes so that it can achieve some of its military objectives in Russia. Um, the Russian economy is in free fall due to stronger than expected sanctions against it, led by some of these European countries like Germany that have been willing to be stronger than they were necessarily last week. Um, and, you know, the, Ukraine is still there defending itself. So that's kind of where we are right now. Mm, Jacob, I think there are at least three vectors that I want you to share your, your analysis on. The first is the current state of military operations of, of the invasion the d different levels of attack from the south, from the east, from the north in Kharkiv, Kiev, um, what's going on, you know, how, it, how it's been extending through through Crimea. The second is the sanctions level. And actually, I have some news of, of my own um, for viewers who, who watched my prior stream. There's been definitely some news on, on SWIFT. Uh, and the third is the financial consequences of the sanctions. Um, 
the uh um the, the what's going on with swift the, the sanctions against russian commercial banks the sanctions mm-hmm. against the russian central bank as well as how private market participants private companies are digesting this and sort of self-sanctioning themselves which is exacerbating mm-hmm. uh, uh the sell-off and particularly i want to talk of the the huge surge uh in the price of oil as well as wheat, um, which you were uh, very prescient on. How about um, I'm going to start by sharing this chart, um, and then we'll get into this. So, uh, can you just walk us through what's going on in Ukraine, uh, particularly? You know, wh- where are the Russian forces? Where are they meeting their objectives? Where are they encountering obstacles that they didn't b- uh, before? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So this is from the Institute for the Study of War, which is a wonderful resource. And they do a good job of also showing you where they're sourcing um, reports that allow them to make these sorts of maps in their reports. So if you haven't checked them out, and, and this is a topic that is of interest to you, it's a great it's a great resource for people like me. Um, you can see on here, they've made it fairly easy for, for folks to read. There are four key axes. Um, and if everything was going for the Russians like it was out of Crimea, uh, you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. This would already be a fait accompli because out of Crimea, Russia seems to be achieving many of its strategic objectives. It's the first city that it took was down there in Crimea. It's been able to link up um, with Donetsk and Luhansk. It has taken over most of the Black Sea ports. Not all. Odessa is still there, and that's an important one. Uh, but it has made a lot of progress. And that's also where Russian forces were in some ways the strongest. So maybe that's not surprising. Um, What's surprising has been from the get-go what's going on in the north, um, which is really, I don't know the polite term for it, it has really just been a disaster from the get-go and they are struggling to correct it. Um, You know, they still have not been able to completely knock out Ukrainian air superiority. They have not been able to make any progress moving forward at Kyiv. Actually, I think it was yesterday they restarted operations, uh, offensive operations, I should say, after kind of getting their logistical dispositions taken care of. They weren't able to take any additional land. Um, You even had reports of Ukrainians counterattacking some of these military convoys that are outside of Kyiv. And then I think a lot of the media footage from the last day or two has been uh, the bombing along the second axis there in Kharkiv, where they're 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 making some headway, I guess, but that really seems to be more about intimidation and more about. I hesitate to say this, but maybe it's a, it's a warning to the rest of Ukraine and especially to Kiev about what a siege might really look like, because there's been a lot of destruction along that side. Um, but you know, I I still like there there's the tactics of war, which I'm by no I'm by no means an expert at I sort of have to be proficient with it but then there's the strategic objectives and that's where I usually spend most of my time thinking about and from the get-go the strategic objective has been get to Kiev decapitate the government get rid of Zelensky get a pro-Russian in there make sure the information war doesn't go against Russia and they are still technically no closer to doing that than they were at the beginning of the week and considering the level of force that Russia's deployed here um, that's a pretty shocking development. I don't know how long it can continue. You would think that eventually Russian numbers and Russian firepower uh, will overwhelm the Ukrainians, especially since the Ukrainians are not getting much more than weapon shipments from outside. But, um, you know, people like me are surprised they've made it this far. And Joseph, can you explain uh, uh, exactly why Russia is having these struggles? You know, there's a lot of anecdotal reports about logistical problems, faulty planning, not enough rations, uh, Russian soldiers abandoning tanks, and in some cases, according to anecdotes, uh, sabotaging their own their own tanks. Uh, why do you think that is the case? And and you know, I know you have drawn a particular parallel between the struggles that Russia had in the two thousand eight Georgian War. Uh, just walk us through your thinking on this. 
Well, uh, I, I don't know exactly why they're having all these struggles. I can tell you that war is really hard. It's not as e it's not like you get to play Age of Empires and you push the pins on the screen and everything goes exactly the way you want to. It's really difficult. And war is really difficult because it's about a lot of unsexy stuff like supply chains and about getting fuel from one place to the other and making sure that there are field rations for soldiers that are there on time. So at the simplest level, the reason things aren't going well for Russia right now is because they didn't have realistic objectives apparently going in. And so they haven't had enough rations to feed their soldiers. A lot of their soldiers weren't expecting this and were surprised to be there. Their logistical supply chains have taken time to go up and they didn't have an information strategy ready for a conflict that was going to be prolonged like this. So the first reason that they're having trouble is because their initial plan didn't go very well. Um, the second, though, and this is just a factor of the geography in this part of the world, um, the same thing that makes Russia so difficult to conquer in its history. Um, you and I have talked about sort of the Russian strategic perspective and why they feel threatened and why they have good reason to feel threatened. They've been invaded over and over and over again from the West. And you can if you put yourself in their shoes for a second, you can imagine why they would be afraid of NATO and why that really disturbs them. At the same time, though, nobody's ever really conquered Russia. And that's because you have to go over incredibly long distances and maintain supply chains in the dead of you know really harsh winters and things like that. So all of that is coming to play in the opposite direction, too. So when Russia, when when excuse me, when Russia wants to get offensive and when it wants to project its power out to the Carpathians and go through Ukraine, it also has long supply chains. This is not a simple military operation. It's a major military operation that's costing Russia a lot of money. Um, you alluded to Georgia, and we were talking about this before we, we hopped on the episode. The thing that has been, I don't want to say most shocking, so many things have been the most shocking things. But one surprising thing to me has been, if you look back at the 2008 conflict between Russia and Georgia, um, that conflict was much shorter, obviously, and Russia didn't attack Georgia in the way that it's attacking sort of the main centers of Ukraine. But um, Russia's performance in that war wasn't actually very good. And it wasn't very good because they had a lot of time, um, excuse me, they had a lot of difficulty coordinating between especially their air assets, their artillery, their land forces. Um, that coordination just didn't happen very well. And over the past 14 years, Russia would be able to correct that. And they're not some of the reports that we're seeing are that, you know, Russian soldiers are using, um, you know, regular old communications. They're on WhatsApp. They're texting each other. They're not using the types of secure communication um, equipment they would need so that prying eyes can't see what they're doing or even jam their communications. So even on these basic levels, Russia isn't executing well on military strategy. All that said, I believe it was Stalin who said that quantity has a quality all of its own. I mean, the, the story of the Russian army has always been that they will outlast you and they've got more of them and they've got more firepower and they are more determined than you will be. And that's that that's maybe the key factor here. And it's very hard for someone, for any of us here to say, okay, how much of the, the drop in Russian morale is a result of a bad plan? How much of that is a result of they don't want to be fighting Ukrainians because they feel like they're their kin? How much of that is just the Ukrainians talking it up? Like We have no way really to know that. We just have the results in front of us, which is that the Russian soldiers are not making much headway. But they're there. They're coiling. They're striking. You know, Eventually, you would think that the odds and the, the overwhelming odds because of their numbers and their firepower is going to start to assert itself. And when do you think it is going to start asserting itself? So far, we've talked about the military operations and the progress up until this point. But when you look forward to the future, 
you know, do you think that Russia will be able to take over Kyiv? Is it a matter of weeks? Is it a matter of, of months? What happens if it, if it doesn't? Uh, and perhaps we can you know, share another chart here uh, that, that you shared with me. Uh, yes, and we should be sure to, I'm not sure exactly who, um, where this was on Twitter, but we should make sure to have a link in whatever comes up afterwards. So, I mean, this is just a really good map showing you the actual vectors um, of advance. And you can see that, I mean, Russia is making progress. It's not like they've just been stalled at the border. They're getting there and their forces are making progress. And once you can kind of, you know, you can see the pincer there starting to reach some of its aims. Um, so, but I, I think the answer to your question is that um, now that Russia has regrouped, uh, now that it seems to have shown that its resolve is still strong to to keep going forward, I I don't want to say I'd be surprised if if you and I are still having this conversation in two weeks and there are still convoys outside of Kiev and the Ukrainians are still counterattacking and Zelensky is still in the streets making Instagram or Facebook videos and things like that, then we have to start talking about what are the odds that Russian President Vladimir Putin remains in power. Um, as long as the Russian strategy is to keep going here. Um, I, I really think they're going to have to to make some serious progress and some serious headway here in a span of one to two weeks, because if it goes on much longer than that, the combination of the financial consequences for the Russian economy, the political consequences for Putin, the boost in morale for the Ukrainian defenders, all of those things are going to work against Russia in the long term. So I would expect that some of these bombings and some of these horrible videos we're starting to see out of Ukrainian cities is the beginning of that Russian offensive. But like I said, we'll know very soon um, whether it is or not, because if you and I are still here talking in a week or two, and this is still the situation, then I'm wrong about kind of what's happening next. And Jacob, since we last spoke, the price of oil and wheat has exploded higher. How do you explain that? Why has that happened? The easy answer is just sanctions. But I, I want you to dig into that for a little bit. And then also, how do you see that sort of situation playing out? You know, at, at, at what point does $200 barrel of oil force the West's hand to, uh, uh, you know, change its, change its attitude? Yeah, so two very different commodities. Let's, let's start with oil. Um, and oil also has the Iran nuclear deal, which is another big geopolitical issue floating around in the background as well. And that deal seems to be imminent. We're hearing a lot of good things out of Iran. You had Iran's oil minister actually saying that he thought, I believe he said this today or yesterday, where he he was he was saying that he thought Iran could have maximum production, which would be another roughly 2 million barrels of oil per day on the market within a month or two of signing the Iran nuclear deal. I wouldn't trust what an Iranian oil minister says. He's obviously uh, trying to present a picture there to increase Iranian leverage. But, you know, I think we're talking about months for Iran to come on the market. And anyway, I think that would go a long way towards resolving some of the market's panic. Um, in general, though, we were already in a situation where overall uh, demand was exceeding supply by about a million barrels per day. And that was largely because um, OPEC in the past, OPEC has always cheated in that different nations um, wanted to not produce as much as they said they were going to or because they wanted to produce more because they wanted a bigger share of price. What's been happening with OPEC in the last couple of months is you've had some countries that have just not been able to meet their production quotas. Uh, Nigeria is the first one that pops up in my head. I can't remember a few of the others. But because of that, um, you've had a situation where um, supply is simply not meeting demand, especially in the growth of the economy post-COVID. So you are already in kind of a tighter market in general. 
Um, in terms of Russian oil, though, and you know, you and I have talked about this. Um, you know, Russia, the sanctions against Russia are very difficult, but they've really been difficult on Russia from a financial perspective. And I think they've even been more effective against Russia's financial sector than maybe the West understood. The actual sanctions on energy flows have actually it hasn't really affected them. I mean, the Europeans are still buying natural gas and oil from Russia right now. Those things haven't been cut off. And the Europeans don't seem willing to cut them off right now. And the Russians don't seem willing to cut it off themselves for a lot of different reasons we could go into. Now, you're hearing the Europeans talk about, we want to reduce our consumption by a third within the next year. We want to pivot to LNG and build these terminals really fast. And we're going to have low storage in the winter. So we don't have to pour. That's all very nice. But that's we're talking many months, even a year down the line. So um, none of the sanctions that are in place right now, they've, they've put a lot of pressure on the Russian financial system for sure, but they have not gone after those energy flows. And as long as those energy flows continue going, I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is panic in the market. This is all about fear, suspicion. Could something be cut off? What's going on? It's very much the rumor, not the actual news. And we don't have the actual news yet. Wheat is a little different. Um, because what's happening with wheat is, and I, I think I've said this statistic on your show before, 90% of Russia's agricultural exports go out through the Black Sea. Um, and Ukraine and Russia together account for 90% of the world's wheat. Uh, not 90%, sorry, 29% of the world's wheat. Um, they're also a major exporter of things like corn, barley, sunflower oil. We can talk about all those others. And what's happening right now, though, with the Black Sea is that um, Ukrainian commercial ports are closed. Uh, a lot of Russian ports are not working. Shipping is very hard to come by. Some ships are encountering mines or are being stopped or even being fired at or, or catching crossfire. Um, it's not to say that all shipping has completely halted, but it's much lower than it was. And folks aren't willing necessarily um, to go and charter new ships and things like that. So you've got countries like Egypt, like Pakistan, like South Korea, like China that are looking around trying to import new supplies. And meanwhile, you've got all this wheat and corn and barley that is literally just stuck in the Black Sea and is not getting out. Now, there are reserves, there are other places to pick things up. But if this goes on for another month or two, then we're actually talking about fundamental supply and demand imbalance, especially if Ukrainian farmers in particular are not able to go sow their crops for the sort of for the spring planting season. So that's why I, I take the wheat situation a little bit more seriously, um, in large part, because I'm worried about the mismatch between supply and demand. And I'm worried about the news that I'm seeing out of the Black Sea, because this, this again goes to so many confusing things in terms of Russia's execution of this military operation. I don't know why they're letting commercial ships be fired on in the Black Sea. That cuts against everything you want the world to know about you if you're if you're Russia. You want that commerce to, get, to keep going, probably, especially if you don't want world opinion to turn against you. So that's why I'm a little more concerned about wheat. But oil, I mean, you know, it's, we're just a few variables away from that also being very concerning. Just to walk viewers through what you're saying, two of Russia's largest uh, commodity exports are oil, natural gas, and, and, and then wheat. Oil and natural gas, you know, they're liquid. They can be flowed through a pipeline so they can be flowed over land, whereas wheat it's really uneconomic to transport it by truck. So it has to go by ship and that would have to be the Black Sea. And as, as viewers can see here, uh, Russia has expanded its uh, uh, um, control of uh, southern Ukraine, not just into Crimea. Um, it hasn't quite made it to Odessa as well. And it's made an eastern land, land bridge uh, um, with the Donbass. So a lot of port cities, uh, Odessa notwithstanding, are under Russian control. Therefore, the wheat from Ukraine cannot flow. And then we go to this next chart, which is the, the price of wheat, um, which, which has 
nearly doubled uh, in the matter of, of only a few days. Uh, this is the Wheat ETF, um, um, which owns futures futures contracts. Um, so yeah, how do you, how do you see this? Is there what in what scenario would the price of wheat be lower than it is now in a week? What what would have to happen for that for for that to happen? Because seems kind of like a one sided market. Uh, Russia would have to show some serious success in its military objectives. We'd have to see more commercial shipping going in and out of the Black Sea. Uh, you could also see things repaired if if these uh, Russian Ukrainian negotiations go anywhere. Maybe that could be a valve for releasing some of that pressure. Um, but those are the two scenarios. Either Russia has a is able to accelerate its its military campaign in Ukraine, or um, Russia sort of has stared at has stared at the abyss and decides to walk things back a little bit. The worst thing I think for the situation would be what I think is most likely at this point, um, which is a slow, protracted kind of grinding it out for a couple of weeks as the Russians try and push forward and as as the Ukrainians try to resist. I think that is kind of the worst case scenario for that. Again, though, like I think in those charts that you showed, that is still largely fear. Um, but if, if we get three to four weeks down the road, that fear starts, I think, to turn into really serious um, fundamental problems that cannot be easily fixed by Saudi pumping more oil, for example, or from rerouting some LNG supplies from one to the other. Um, if you're Egypt or if you're Turkey and you're importing 20% of your wheat uh, from Russia, uh, or if you're China and you you um, take in 50% of Ukraine's corn exports and you're trying to rebuild your your corn herd, you're already making um, contingency plans. The Chinese today bought a bunch of U.S. corn and a bunch of U.S. soybeans because they're worried about global kind of agricultural access. And I mean, it's it's a good. I I, I don't want to say good. It's but um, the if you're a if you're a Canadian farmer, a U.S. farmer, an Australian farmer, an Argentinian farmer. Um, all of this is probably good news for your for your bottom line going forward. Hmm. And to what degree is the disruption in commodity markets not due to the sanctions themselves, but the impact of a literal war? Right. So so much of the increase in the price of war, the reason the price of wheat, excuse me, not war. Uh, the the reason that the, the ships can't get there is not because of sanctions. It's because of um, it's, it's in the middle of a war zone. So shipping companies are not sending their ships there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 honestly hard to understand because we're very, very early on into the sanctions regime and, and there are not easy answers to, to this. I, I don't think the commercial sanctions against Russia are really what is biting. What's been biting Russia, to your point, are these financial sanctions. Um, you know, the fact that the ruble's value has basically been cut in half. The fact that a lot of especially European and American companies are just afraid of doing business with Russian companies right now. They're expecting sanctions on the level of the Iran sanctions that the U.S. has passed um, against Iran and that have been in place for a long time. Um, so I think part of, though, and one of the things that is not being reported in Western press is that that's largely a Western slash European phenomenon. And that makes a lot of sense. I think the Europeans and the Germans in particular feel betrayed by Putin and everything that he's done. I think they thought that they had something of a pragmatic understanding here. But when you start looking around, you start seeing countries like Pakistan's been importing large quantities of Russian wheat in the last few days. China um, got rid of a bunch of sanitary concerns over Russian wheat, and they started importing large quantities of that wheat. They've also told the Russians, by the way, we're going to pay in yuan, and you're going to have to be happy with that. Um, the Indians have reportedly been talking about um, a rupee payment scheme with the Russians. I don't think it's that. I don't think talks are that far advanced yet, but they're there. Um, think about Brazil, which isn't interested in importing cereals, but is very interested in importing fertilizer. 
um, from Russia, which is a major exporter of fertilizer. And it's why Bolsonaro was in Russia basically the week before the invasion. And while they signed on to the UN condemnation of the of the invasion, they've also said they want to be neutral and they want to have kind of an open relationship with Russia. So I would also say you know, caution folks to understand that in Europe and in US in particular, um, there's a lot of suspicion about Russia. And I think that's driving some of these companies um, isolating themselves from Russia and driving even more of that economic pain. But not every country in the world is like that. And a lot of these countries that rely on Russia for some of these commodities and cannot easily replace them themselves, for them, they're thinking pragmatically and about an opportunity. And that's one of the amazing things about, what, about what's happening right now. Um, sometimes change happens gradually over a long period of time, and sometimes change happens all at once. And we'll probably be dissecting you know, the massive changes in global trade flows that are happening just in the last week or two for months. I'm sure it will fill many dissertations for graduate students <laughs> down the road to understand what, how much has changed in the last few weeks and will change in the, in the next few weeks as a result of all these political coalitions. Jacob, you mentioned uh, foreign companies, non-Russian companies declining to do business with Russia. What stands out to you as the most conspicuous examples of Com of companies that are saying, you know, it's just too risky, or or they want to take, uh, you know, a moral stance. Um, what what companies stand out, and how significant are they? Um, the one that most surprised me was Exxon Mobil, which did not have a particularly large operation in Russia, but was in the Far East. Um, and I mean, Rex Tillerson was kind of famously in 2014 when the Ukrainian Revolution started, was you know very clear. Oh, Exxon does this. You know, we're we're neutral. We're a company. We're here to make money. Like we've We've withstood the test of time and we we want to be here. Uh, Exxon started pulling out its employees. You know, I think it was two days ago that uh, that Bloomberg or Reuters was reporting that um, a number. You know, there's there have been several other companies as well. Um, but in general, I, I think that, um, that that that's the one that that jumps most to mind. If you've got Exxon Mobil is thrown in the towel, um, that gives you a good sense of just how much U.S. companies and European companies are, are writing it off. The second one is not a company. It's I mean, Germany in particular. Um, just at the foreign policy level, so obviously is is making a U-turn that a lot of these German companies, German banks, Austrian banks, they're also all getting out of Russia as well. So uh, I've talked for a long time about a multipolar world. It's it's literally happening right before our eyes. There are very few companies in Europe and in the United States that I think are willing, at least right now, um, to tolerate the kind of risk. I will say right before we got on the show, I saw McKinsey was saying they're going to stick around in Russia. So congrats <laughs> to McKinsey for that decision. A, a brave choice, uh, uh, no <laughs> doubt. J yeah, Jacob, let, let's turn to the sanctions. I guess there's sort of three levels of sanctions. There's the commercial sanctions on Russian businesses. Then there are sanctions on Russian commercial banks. And then there are sanctions on the Russian central bank. Uh, and I'd also add in uh, uh, the cancellation of SWIFT for Russian uh, commercial banks. I, I did an interview, things moving so fast, I actually forget if it was Tuesday or Monday, but I, I spoke with uh, um, uh, uh, Francis Coppola and, and Joseph Wang, mm -hmm. and we reported on how the SWIFT thing had sort of just been a declaration. It actually had not happened, and that the messaging from swift the, this uh messaging service for for transnational interbank payments uh, it, they they really had not taken a position on it and said you know we're thinking about it we, our heart goes out to ukraine but they hadn't made a declaration uh mm -hmm. yesterday that that changed so let's actually i'm going to pull that up on, on screen uh this is from the official journal of the european union uh listing the banks 
that Swift would that from which Swift would be, would be canceled. Uh, so VTB definitely stands out uh, um, as a as a big bank there. And this is from from Swift. They said uh, we will fully comply with a, applicable sanctions laws, and to this end, in compliance with blah 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 blah, we will disconnect seven Russian entities from the Swift network, and that will happen. Uh, so on, on, on March 12th, and uh, you know these these are these are the seven banks. So the SWIFT thing uh, has happened. You know, I know I have, I've been talking about it's, it's just words. There isn't action yet, but that has changed. And you know, when the facts change, you have to change reporting. So uh, that's changed on on the SWIFT level. What else stands to you, Jacob, on for sanctions? What sort of is the next shoe to drop for for sanctions? When you you know, if let's say you know, God forbid, we have you. Know, a lot of violence in Ukraine, you know, more than we have now. And Western leaders want to step up sanctions, want to, to punish and deter Russia to a greater level. They want to step it up from a seven to an eight. What would that look like? And at what level, eight and a half, nine, would energy come into play? Yeah. So I, th I think when we spoke a week ago, I sort of said the initial sanctions were at a six. Um, and if you're, if you're thinking at it on a sliding scale, make, you know, sort of perfect free trade, no sanctions as your zero and U S sanctions against Iran or North Korea would kind of be your 10. Um, I don't, I, th I think one of the difficulties that the United States and, and Europe and their partners are having is that there's not really a whole lot left on the table they can do bef before they get to energy sanctions. And they really don't want to do energy sanctions because of how dependent Europe is. Um, that would make this, that would make things a lot worse. I think I, the, the U S in particular is still operating in this framework that president Biden articulated, which is maximum amount of pain on Russia with a minimum amount of pain on the U S and its allies. So if you wanted to get really serious, you wouldn't just have seven banks with SWIFT. It would be all Russian banks. And you would you know, be doing everything you possibly could to make sure that nobody could buy anything from Russia or pay Russia in anything. You would want to make them a pariah state. And by the way, they would find ways around that. Um, and then you would have to impose new sanctions immediately as soon as they found a loophole. It's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole. There's not one thing you're going to do and it's going to stop everything. But if your decision is you want to cripple Russia and make sure nobody can pay them, Things like no company may import Russian energy or else they will feel U.S. sanctions. You can one of the things that the U.S. does with um, uh, with Iran is that it, it describes the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as the um, as a terrorist group. And they own something like 40, 50 percent of the Iranian economy when you actually start to look at it. So by by putting them on the terrorist designation list, they can do all sorts of things to Iran. Um, can you wait, wait use, sorry, can you who, use... who are they labeling as terrorists who, and who, who owns 40 percent of the Iranian economy? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, and I think I misspoke. It's it's the Islamic, it's the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, Iran's a very um, interesting country, let's put it that way. Um, it, it basically has a dual political structure. And the IRGC is supposed to protect the revolution. And then the government is supposed to run the is supposed to run the Iranian government. And the IRGC is there to make sure that the Iranian government lives up to the the Shia principles of, of what the theocracy there wants. Um, so the IRGC has been has been designated by the U.S. as a terrorist group. It's on the I believe, and I, I think one of the things that's actually on the table in the negotiations in Vienna around the um, Iran nuclear deal is taking the IRGC off of a list like that. 
I'm just using that as an example, though, to say, like, if, if you really want to go, you get creative with these things. Um, can you call, you know, certain parts of, of Russia? Can you can you call them terrorist groups? Can you craft new laws that would make some of these institutions even more of a pariah? Like there are absolutely things you can do, but if you escalate any more than you are right now, if you're the if you're the U.S. or Europe, you're starting to risk energy supply and energy security. And as far as I can tell, that's still not something anybody's really going to stomach. Um, I have a hard time believing there that government leaders are going to do that just because things get worse in Ukraine. But um, you know, the longer this goes on, and the more grisly the reporting gets out of Ukraine, and the more effective Ukraine is at presenting that narrative. Uh, maybe it does put pressure on on leaders to do that. But the flip side of that is if you're calling for those types of sanctions, like you said, get ready for $200 a barrel oil. You can't blink when it goes 200, 300. You can't blink when natural gas prices are going to triple on you right then and there. Like that's the sort of trade-off we're talking about if, if that's where you want to go with sanctions. I want to throw two things at you and, and get your analysis on them. The first is... Uh, Ukraine's call for Russia to be banned from the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And the second is the brewing talks uh, of, I actually forgot the acronym, I apologize, but uh, the International Criminal Court um, mm. uh, and, and the sort of you know, uh, uh, allegations that what is what Russia is doing to Ukraine is so horrible that the international court should, should uh, uh, levy charges against them. Uh, how serious are these efforts? Do they have teeth? Uh, what are their consequences going to be? Let's take the easier one first, which is the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Uh, you know, in the words of Dave Chappelle, uh, as, as Black President Bush, like, what are you going to do? Sanction me with your army? Is the, is the ICC going to sanction Russia with its army? Is it going to go in and arrest Vladimir Putin for war crimes? No. There's a reason that, that institute, global institutions like the ICC have really only ever prosecuted, you know, uh, African dictators. I guess you can throw in some of what happened in Serbia at the time, although in, in the late 90s, although I don't think that was the ICC. I think that was another another international body. But I don't put a whole lot of stock in those types of international law institutions. They've never been particularly strong, and they're obviously not going to stop Russia from doing anything. The WTO question is more interesting. Um, and I was actually just talking with a client this morning about this. And I the the sort of spicy hot take answer to you would be that I'm pretty sure the WTO is dead in the water right now anyway. It still exists. I'm, su I'm sure it's still going to exist for a long time. But when you kind of look around at the global economy, even before this war, there was a whole lot of protectionism sprouting up all over the place. And in some ways, the U.S. started this. The U.S.-China trade war was a big opening salvo, I think, and an attack against the WTO and saying the WTO um, had not really done what that U.S. government wanted it to do. Um, so I think kind of what, what you're seeing going forward here is, and this is what I was alluding to with the remaking of, of trade so quickly, um, you're seeing the emergence of these distinct spheres of geopolitical influence, and some of them are not going to interact with each other. And just because the WTO tells Russia that they can't have a tariff on something, or they can't have a protectionist trade measure, or is or tells the US that it can't do this or that sanction, people are just going to ignore the WTO in, this, in, in those situations. So I'm not saying the WTO is going to collapse overnight. I'm just saying that we've already been on, tra on a trajectory where countries are ignoring the WTO. And when you're in a situation where national security issues like this are on the table, people are going to ignore the WTO even more. That's part of what Russia wants. Russia wants to undermine all of these international institutions, which it views as undergirding US supremacy and primacy in the world. Um, 
one of the reasons Russia and China get along right now, even though they're historical competitors, is because they both agree none of these rules were written for us. We want to re we want to rewrite these rules, or at minimum, we want to have our own rules and our own sphere of influence. And you can't come and interfere in our sphere of influence. And the whole reason we're here talking about Ukraine is because Russia thinks that Ukraine is in its sphere of influence, and nobody else agrees with them. Um, so, as you can tell, I'm not very optimistic about the long term uh, prospects for inter for what have been very important multilateral organizations like the WTO, but which are losing some of their logic in the context of these types of devel developments. Can you explain just the, the World Trade Organization, what it actually does? I know that being in it, it sort of flattens a lot of the boundaries from trade. So if if you know I'm selling wheat and you're selling shoes in it, and we're different countries, it just makes it a lot easier to do business. But how exactly does that happen? Yeah, I mean, this all goes, it all arises out of the post-World War II order that the U.S. helped lead. Um, and it um, it goes from GATT to WTO. I mean, the EU is part of this whole thing as well. But the whole idea for the U.S. was to have free trade. The Cold War was about sort of the U.S. liberalized trading system versus the Soviet communist system, right? That was where they were squaring off. And the WTO is founded in 1995. In some ways, it's the declaration of victory for the United States in the Cold War. Um, because the United States gets to say, okay, the Soviet Union collapsed. And now, as uh, Francis Fukuyama said, the end of history is here and everybody's going to want to be a liberal democracy and everybody's going to have free trade. And this is going to be great. And that's and exactly what happened, years, Jacob. We're done. <laughs> well, it, it did for 30 years. And then history came back, didn't it? Um, and some people will tell you that the the moment the WTO went off the rails was when it let China in. Um And because China obviously um, did a lot of things with its economy that didn't completely... Uh, jive with what the WTO wanted it to do, and it was supporting a lot of industries that should have failed. And it didn't, you know, once you let kind of that that one mistake in, um, it compounded throughout the system. I don't know about that. I think there was also, I think that also speaks to this idea in the West that if you do have free trade and you welcome someone into the W uh, the WTO, that they will eventually become a liberal democracy. That was obviously wrong about China. I think, by the way, it's it's wrong about Russia, too. I think a lot of people thought that if you integrate Russia into the global economy, uh, that suddenly Russia is not going to be as scary as it was in the past. And Putin, if you go back and look at old quotes from Putin 10, 15 years ago, he used to talk like that. He used to talk like a guy who just wanted to have foreign investment and free trade and make bring Russia into the 21st century economy, things like that. But yes, the, the WTO is really just an organization that if you join, it means you're you're signing on the idea that free trade is good. So you're, you're not allowed to um, unfairly protect your own domestic industries, or you're not allowed to, to do things for a political reason that would obstruct trade. If you're part of the WTO and you're a good faith member of the WTO, that means you want to be part of the system that is moving towards free trade and where you don't have governments that are going to put up protections um, here and there willy-nilly to, to go after industries in other countries. It's more about a rising tide lifting all boats. Hmm. Jacob, uh, so we got we got one comment from a party on dude who says very one sided conversation, disappointing. And I would actually uh, want to you know ask party on dude, in what way is our conversation disappoint disappointing? You know, do you think that we are displaying some sort of uh, bias? You know, Jacob, I actually you know one of the reasons I actually had you on and continue to ask you on the program is I actually think that you're a very objective geopolitical analyst who is not, you know, uh, whose, whose bread is not buttered by the State Department, is not like part of the CIA industrial uh, uh, complex. And 
you know, I, I like to think of myself as a, you know, open-minded person who is not someone who's, you know, instantly going to retweet the fact that, oh, the Snake Island soldiers were, were, were um, killed by the Russian military, which ultimately ended up to be, you know, a, a falsehood that was spread willingly or not uh, um, by the Ukrainian government. I actually like to think of ourselves, Jacob, as people who are you know, looking at this relatively soberly. So I welcome you, anyone in the audience who thinks that we have a bias to uh, let us let us know what our bias is and, and we can explore it. Um, but Jacob, unless you have anything else to say on that, I want I want to while we let party on do the uh, type, I want to um, go to the <laughs> Russian stock market, uh, which is you know has been crashing. You know, not it's not only the Russian ruble which is you know sold off nearly forty percent, thirty five percent, something like that, um, but you now trading less than a penny. But the Vanek Russia ETF, which is a, a basket of stocks that. Uh, is an ETF form for, for, for Russian stocks. The biggest stock I think is Polymetal, and then there, there's Gazprom. By the way, just just saying, Gazprom does not use SWIFT. So this whole thing of, uh, oh, we're gonna use SWIFT to target like Gazprom, a huge exporter of, of oil and energy, they do not use SWIFT. That aside, this basket of, of Russian stocks in an ETF wrapper, that by the way, is not trading Russian uh, stocks directly. I think called, uh, trading in Moscow, and it, it was halted by the Russian central bank. It still may be. This basket of stocks has sold off a tremendous amount from you know, 32 to uh, $6.16. What is your outlook here, Jacob? You know, the sort of efficient market uh, hypothesis would say, well, the, you know, anything in stocks, in stock sells off, it's because the future earnings discounted uh, to, to, to the present based on interest rates has decreased. Uh, you know, a more flows-based, perhaps more sober analysis is flows. People are selling. It, you know, people have to sell, so they'll sell for for as much as possible. What explains this huge crash from you know twenty-four dollars, but you know a few weeks ago to now six dollars and sixteen cents now? Yeah. Uh, before I answer that question, just to about the objectivity thing, I, I just also just want to say, um, I try to be as objective as possible. Nobody is objective. Um, it's it's something to aspire to. It's not something that you will ever reach. Um, it's it's a Sisyphean task. Um, and all I can say is I promise to tell you when I'm wrong, and I promise to tell you what I'm what my biases are, and to be open about what my biases are. Uh, I absolutely my bias is against the Russians here. If if we want to have a conversation about like what I think the moral uh, <laughs> implications of all this are, you, know, you and I can crack open a beer here, and maybe we can talk about it that. But that's not why people pay me, and that's not why people normally want to talk to me. Like they talk to me because I try and detach myself from those considerations and leave that for you know conversations with my friends at happy hour, um, not for when we're trying to understand what's going on, why it's going on. So I'm sure there are biases embedded in, in what I'm saying. I'm actually grateful to people like Party on Dudes when they when they're able to catch me on them. Um, you know, please do let me know and don't be shy. I, I actually know I'm doing a good job when I get hate mail from both sides of a political issue. That's always what I'm. That's always what I'm going for. Uh, in terms of RSX and in general, I mean, at CI actually we had a a, a small position in RSX um, early on when I still thought the chances of a resolution was going to be fairly high. I kind of liked the risk reward. Then we got rid of that very very quickly. Um, before this massive dip that you're 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 showing on your screen here, um, because things started to change, which again that goes to you have to learn to change your mind very very quickly. You can have the perfect model all you want, uh, but when reality starts telling you something different, it's important to get out. I think part of what you're seeing on this chart is people didn't get out or weren't able to change their minds or couldn't understand what's going wrong. But this, I mean, whether it's the ruble chart or it's this chart, this is what fear looks like. This is what people saying I don't want to be involved in this market. 
um, actually looks like. I think this is a, in some ways, it's a, a beautiful piece of empirical data that tells you just how much um, Western investors are not happy with what Russia is doing and doesn't want to be there at all. I mean, for the first time in in my, well, I don't want to say in my career, but for the first time in five or 10 years, I'm hearing investors say things like, I don't care if the valuation looks good. I don't want to be in Russian stocks right now. And that's something I'm hearing kind of more and more, which is shocking. The whole point of investing is to is to make money, not to feel good about what you're doing or to feel bad about what you're doing, et cetera. So I think there is a, a real sea change here. And in this, I you know, and another thing to say about this chart, I think is that as as Russia kind of turns away from the West and has that ideological clash with the West, um, it's going to have to move east. I think the uns the thing we haven't said today at all is that the more that Russia finds itself isolated from Europe and the United States, the more it becomes dependent on China, and the more that Russia is really going to have to think of itself as a gas station for India and for China and align itself there, and and it's going to have all sorts of problems geopolitically. I think there in the long term. So in that sense, in a roundabout way, that chart tells you that too. Mm. Oh, so we actually have a follow up from Party on Dude. He says, "Thanks yeah. for raising my criticism. Where does U.S. statementship fit into this conflict? Is there an understanding of the threat Russia may feel, just as the U.S. felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis?" I would also add. A question um, from our very smart newsletter writer at Blockworks, uh, Byron, who asks, what does Jacob think of John Mearsheimer's uh, point of view that it's the West's fault? Great. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, but pleased that, that Mearsheimer is coming up. But we'll get to him uh, kind of in a second. Uh, look, party on, dude. Uh, you will not find in in me someone who is going to tell you that U.S. statesmanship or foreign policy for the last 30 years has been anything other than an unmitigated disaster. Um, and we can go down Iraq, Afghanistan, um, the trade war. You, you start it. Both sides of the aisle, short-sighted thinking, um, nobody thinking strategically. I mean, I, I have all sorts of bad things I could say about U.S. foreign policy. And by the way, I did say earlier on the show, I talked about how Russia's strategic history um, and its history of invasion from the West, I absolutely get why Russian de uh, strategic decision makers are afraid and weren't happy about NATO pushing out and weren't happy that they felt like the U.S. was reneging on whatever, whether it was promised or not. Russia has this sense that the United States said that um, it wasn't going to push further into Eastern Europe than it was going to. Like, sure, I get it. But it's all pretty much immaterial to me because I, I'm pretty sure that Russia would have found a way to keep pushing out. Um, because that's what it's always done. And the U.S. was going to push out there as well, too. All of these these ideologies and these political statements that people use to paper over, paper over things, they're interesting. They tell you things about political leaders' motivations and things like that. But one of the things about geopolitics, which is my discipline, is to get, a, get away from all that and look at the fundamentals, which is to say exactly what you're saying. Like The reason Russia is in Ukraine is because it feels threatened from the West in Europe and that the Carpathian Mountains at the end of the Ukrainian border is a much more defensive position than its current position. Um, now, I thought that the best way for Russia to secure that would have been using its political leverage because it had everybody dancing to their tune already before they did this invasion. For some reason, they felt like they had to go in. And I think that was a strategic miscalculation. Um, but I am not one who is going to sit here and tell you that everything is one person's fault or not one person's fault. And I'm certainly not going to tell you that U.S. foreign policy here has been particularly good or that the Europeans have been particularly good. Part of the reason this is here is that, you know, Putin didn't take Europe seriously because he thought the Germans were just going to look the other way. And he had plenty of reason to think the Germans were going to look the other way. He didn't think he was going to sort of have any costs there. 
Um, Mearsheimer. Um, for those who don't know who John Mearsheimer is, he, um, I'm forgetting, is what's his book? Great Power Politics? I'm, I'm now forgetting the title of the book that made him famous. Anyway, he's one of the most famous um, U.S. foreign policy experts in the academic community. Um, I already mentioned Francis Fukuyama, uh, Mearsheimer, and then Samuel Huntington is probably, they're, they're probably the big three of kind of the, the 80s, 90s, you know, early 2000s is when they made their name. Uh, Huntington was Clash of Civilizations. If you want to look him up, he was also wrong about a lot of different things. Um, but so Mearsheimer is a really, really smart guy. I've actually met him once or twice. He probably doesn't remember me at all, but I've seen him speak. He's a very, very compelling figure. His books are great. Um, he's really the... I wouldn't say the founder, he's sort of the godfather of the realist school of politics, which has a lot of overlap with geopolitics. Um, realism is about um, the difference between realism and geopolitics is that geopolitics is more just descriptive and it's more about trying to describe what is and what will be, whereas realism tries to say, okay, now that you've done all that, I want to say this is what you should do in order to get those goals. And it tries to abstract reality out of that. It says that states have interests and that all of foreign policy should be just about achieving your interests, not about things like democracy or xenophobia or anything like that. It's just, okay, like my interest is to get to the Carpathians. I want to get to the Carpathians. Um, he's an academic. So um, I think that he should have the right to say or study anything that he wants. Um, and I don't think anybody who is going after him for speaking his opinion on this, um, I, I, I want him to be able to say whatever he wants because he's brilliant. And whether he's right or wrong, he's always been somebody who kind of says things that are extremely interesting. I would obviously, and I haven't seen the exact quote with him, but I've, I've seen it floating around. Um, I'm not particularly interested in whose fault this is. I'm sure there's fault on both sides. Um, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that it is in any way the United States's fault that Russia is gone into Ukraine. Um, you know, it takes both of those powers not talking to each other, not thinking of each other's interests, not prioritizing each other. Uh, to get to a situation like we're in, but it's also at a certain point like, okay, so what What if we decide that it is the United States' fault? What does that do for anyone? What does it do if 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 it's the if if it's Russia's fault? I think the thing that is good about Mearsheimer and that he's very good at is explaining to you why Russia is doing what it's doing and why the U.S. is doing what it's doing. Um, and you know, we can leave the fault stuff to sort of armchair philosophers who want to decide what's right and wrong for the world because that's above my pay grade. Mm. So, uh, yeah, leaving all the fault arguments aside, do you think that if the U.S. had been less strident in encouraging, let's say, uh, Eastern European countries to join NATO, that that would have lessened Russian aggression? I think that that really is the, the sort of logical linchpin, right? No, I don't think it would have made any difference. Maybe there would have been less aggression because these many of these Eastern European countries wouldn't have joined the EU and there and then Russia wouldn't have felt threatened. But what I can say is that whether the United States did that or not, as soon as Russia got over the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was going to start pushing out into Eastern Europe because that's what it's always done with its foreign policy. Russia needs strategic depth. And whether that's through satellite states or political incentives or through tanks rolling through Kiev, it can do the tactics can change, but Russia's geopolitical imperatives, they've been the same for half a millennium, which is push out to the Carpathian Mountains, keep pushing out as far as you can, get strategic depth so that those threats that emanate from the, the West, whether they're NATO, the United States, Hitler, Napoleon, the you know, the Polish Lithuanian Lithuanian Commonwealth, whoever they are, 
make it so they have to go over a lot of territory before they can get to Moscow to make things hard. That was going to be what Russia's geopolitics looked like, uh, no matter whether it was Putin in power, no matter whether the United States did or didn't let people into NATO. That was what it was going to look like. Maybe it changes the tactics and things like that, but it wouldn't have changed Russia's imperatives, not in the slightest. Mm. When do you think, you know, what what sort of dominoes are, are, are going to fall? Like, like when do you think that Kiev will fall? Um, do you think that the Ukrainian Zelensky government will last? Uh, how long so? And also, you said earlier that if Kiev, Kiev isn't taken in a few, in a matter of weeks, that pressure will grow on Vladimir Putin. In particular, there could be so, sort of a palace intrigue and, and you know, uh, folks in Russia might be looking for a, a replacement in terms of a, a Russian leader. And maybe you can also tie in the sanctions on the oligarchs uh, as well for pressure. Yeah, I'll try to answer all parts of that. And if I miss any, please come back at me and hit me at, at what I missed. Um, grain of salt, and I've been eating plenty of my own humble pie the last week. I didn't think Russia was going to invade in the first place. So I feel a little weird saying, okay, and now I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. I have to. Like The only person who hasn't fallen off a horse is one who hasn't ridden a horse, as we say, back on the farm. So you got to get back on and try again, right? And at least be honest about where your analysis failed. And I think I, I, think I have been. Um, no, I think the most likely scenario is still that Russia will take Kyiv. Um, I'm scared for Zelensky. Um, I, I would rather him not have, to, I don't want anyone to have to become a martyr. I think he's positioned himself as somebody who is obviously a thorn in Russia's side. And I could see that kind of scenario unfolding for him, not saying that's what's going to happen, but you know, I, I think you can't help but worry, um, for him in that sort of situation. But no, I, I think that Russia's firepower and its overwhelming superiority in numbers is eventually going to assert itself and that they will take Kyiv. Um, so I think in the short term, probably Putin will get what he wants in the long term. I still think this is a terrible miscalculation, and I think he's asking for a Texas-sized Iraqi insurgency on his border. And I don't know how Russia thinks it's going to be. This is not Chechnya. This is not Belarus. I don't know um, how Russia thinks it's going to be able to kind of solve this thing. But in the short term, yes, I think in the next week or two, things are going to get very bad. And probably it ends with Russia succeeding um, and taking over Kiev. What was the second part of your question, Jack? I'm forgetting it. Uh, about the oligarchs, but I actually have something more, more interesting is if if Russia takes over Kyiv, the, the Zelensky government is, is gone. Uh, whether you know, Zelensky you know, is, is assassinated or something horrible like that, what do you think the odds are of sanctions on uh, Russian energy? Real sanctions, not no, no loopholes. No, the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury provides diagrams telling Russian banks how they can circumvent their own sanctions. Like real, no, not a, not a drop of Russian gas in Berlin. I don't see it happening. I, I don't see Europe committing energy suicide over Ukraine. Uh, I absolutely believe that they will move as quickly as possible and spend as much money as possible to reduce their dependence on Russia over time. I could see them having, you know, maybe they put, um, I, I could see them trying to have their imports of Russian energy, but I think that's all going to be stuff that's going to happen internally in the EU. Um, if they go much further here, um, you know, like I said, I can't imagine that any political leader, no matter what the the, the sort of populist view is going to be, I don't, I can't really imagine any political leader signing up um, for three hundred dollar barrel of oil or tripling of natural gas prices um, if they don't absolutely have to. Um, I, I think the bigger issue here is not going to be what's going to happen in the course of weeks because I don't see any European leader being able to do that and remain in power. It's going to be how quickly can they transition away from Russia. 
And I think that if you have real political will and you have real money behind um, reducing that dependence on Russia, that can happen quicker than you think. Because um, if you combine some LNG and some renewable spending and you get some more shale producers pumping in the U.S., I mean, you could start to cobble that together, not in weeks, but, you know, are we talking quarters? Are we talking maybe a year or two? Like maybe you can get to the place where you're less dependent and then you can be like Canada and sanction <laughs> Russian mm -hmm. energy because you don't need them anymore, right? But I don't, with, with the level of energy dependence Europe still has on Russia, and with the lack of alternatives in the short term, by which I mean sort of the three to nine month period to wean themselves off of it, I don't see um, those types of energy sanctions for anything less than something like tactical nuclear strikes or, or something where, you know, that'll be the least of our problems if we get there. Okay. What about a scenario like, and before I say a scenario like, I want to say that I'm not saying this is happening. And even if I did, you definitely shouldn't listen to me because I don't know really anything <laughs> about geopolitics. But what about a scenario a where... One. Rush, you know, Russia takes over Ukraine in, in, in objectively sort of, you know, objectively does war crimes uh, that, that are really horrible. Um, and then Russia invades, invades Poland. I mean, are, are, in, are you also, is that also an environment in when, in where sanctions on Russian energy is, is not in play? And perhaps you can you uh, also tie the fact that Ukraine and Russia are currently trading, right? You said that to me before we went live and that just astonished me, but, but sorry, go back to my main question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, First of all, Russia is already guilty of war crimes. Um, the United States is guilty of war crimes in Iraq with, with that opinion in $2.75. You can go to any Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. That's about what it's <laughs> worth. Um, so I, I, I'm very cynical about this. Like, I don't like people are making a big rhetorical show of support for Ukraine. And I think people actually do really believe it. They want to support Ukraine. I don't think that um, however tough it gets inside Ukraine, um, that those energy sanctions are going to be forthcoming. Like I said, I don't see Europe committing energy suicide for Ukraine. Um, they're going they've opened up their borders to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, they'll obviously probably fund and arm the insurgency. I'm sure they'll try and make life as miserable as they possibly can for Russia and start, you know, all, all these, I hope they start a TV show of all the yachts that they're seizing. I think that would be sort of epic Hollywood entertainment sort of stuff. But no, I don't see them going to the energy sanctions route. You said Poland though, as soon as we get to a NATO country, uh, we're not talking about energy sanctions. We're talking about World War III because if you violate, and I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I have too much faith in U.S. security promises. I don't know, but everything that I know about geopolitics tells me that if Russia went after any NATO member, uh, then it's gloves off, and it's not just energy sanctions. It's U.S. military forces. It's no-fly zones. It's the it's the whole nine yards. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons that the um, you know, if, if you really if you really wanted to deter Russia, if you were the West and you really cared about Ukraine, they would have been in NATO already. And they're not in NATO because people care enough to make, um, you know, Twitter comments and Instagram posts about them, but not enough to die for them. And I'm, I'm not judging one way or another. I'm just saying sort of objectively speaking, like nobody wanted to die for the Ukrainians and nobody's going to um, lose all of their energy security, I think, because Russia is in is in Ukraine. Uh, Poland's different. That's a military alliance and there have been commitments made. And if you don't draw the line there, um, you know, things are kind of different. I think Putin probably knows that too. That's why any country in Eastern Europe, and there are not a whole lot of them. I mean, Moldova should be very concerned about its future right now. Like countries that are not in NATO in Eastern Europe, uh, those are kind of ripe for the picking for Russia. The 
The flip side of that, of course, is I think that's the worst. Again, I think this is a miscalculation for Putin. Okay, so you get an insurgency in Ukraine in a country you're not going to be able to control. Was that really worth it? I, I don't see it, but obviously he felt differently about what Moscow needed for its national security. Yeah, we have a, a commenter uh, uh, asserting, I don't know whether it's true, that the president of Belarus had its plans leaked that Moldova was next to invade. What if it's not Poland? What if it's Moldova that is invaded? Are you, are you saying that there's sort of no real line between the current sanctions we have now and nuclear war if if not a, a active ground war between the west and and russia you know energy sanctions are really there, there's there's no middle line between those two with energy sanctions being somewhere in between uh well first of all lukashenko what a what a crazy guy um and i i saw the the the, the map that he purportedly showed and that that uh, moldova was on was on the invasion plan or whatever Maybe it was. I don't know. I mean, maybe if they had gotten to Kiev in two days, maybe they would have continued to roll into Moldova. I'm not 100% convinced of that. But um, like I said, I, I would be worried if I was Moldova. Everything that's happening in Ukraine should kind of scare me there. Um, yes, there's a difference between sort of full-on nuclear war and between energy sanctions. But um, I, I, I'm going to stick to my guns here and just say that you know, if 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 Europe decides that it wants to shut off natural gas from Russia tomorrow, okay, like then, I mean, I, I just don't know how they're going to make up for the shortfall. Like even if you rerouted LNG and even if you used a lot more coal and even if you rationed energy production by 50%, um, okay, like the economic costs of that are going to be absolutely cataclysmic. Is any European leader actually going to sign up for that? I don't think so. It makes a lot more sense for Macron to tweet things in Ukrainian uh, and, you know, for for Scholz to talk about how they're going to throw 100 billion euros at the German military and they'll have two LNG terminals in a couple of years, like, and they'll send them some anti-tank missiles. Like, that seems to me to be the extent to which Europe is willing to actually help Ukraine. Now, the extent to which Europe is going to try as quickly as possible to wean itself off of Russian energy, like, that raises the question of whether Russia, when Russia sees that um, that leverage is not going to be leverage anymore. Maybe then that's when they kind of pull that cord in order to to go back and hurt Europe from that fundamental basis. But I just don't see, like from a, it's not even about reality. It's just like, I don't know how Europe functions if suddenly all the lights go out. And and if you if you really do stop all of Russia's oil and all of Russia's natural gas from coming into the block, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, having to ration energy supplies for, you know, and it's kind of hard to imagine that in, in Europe in 2022, right? Mm. So uh, a easy question to ask, very hard question to answer. If Russian oil is still flowing, Russian natural gas is still flowing to, to the West, how come the price of oil, specifically the front month futures of oil, not long-term oil, but short-term oil, has have spiked so much? If If the fundamentals in terms of sanctions don't really change the scenario, wouldn't that indication indicate that the huge surge in oil prices is more due, due to hoarding, speculation, stockpiling than, you know, true sanctions? Because they're not true sanctions on, on energy. Yeah, Jack, if the fundamentals of investing were always right, I would own a little island and be drinking little drinks with little umbrellas in them and not here <laughs> talking to you on this phone call. Um, so much of investing is psychological. Um, so I think when you're looking at what's going on, and by the way, markets are tight. Like there are a lot of reserves out there, but yes. demand was already exceeding supply by about a million barrels per day at the beginning of the year. So you had a tight market. Um, 
already and then you throw in this war and every a war that nobody was expecting including myself and you get a lot of fear and you get a lot of speculation just like you said so i don't see anything right now that makes me think that um the fundamentals are off and that's why i'm not so scared like this all sort of to me is within the bounds of there's a war people are afraid people are trying to figure out what's going to happen next and positioning themselves um, accordingly that changes if if you get iran level sanctions against russian oil because I mean, Russia will still export oil abroad as Iran does, but it will be very difficult for them to sell all of it and certainly not at the price that they want to sell it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, we're not in a land yet where the fundamentals are any worse than they were necessarily before this conflict started. We're talking about politics and ideology and fear, all of which are very real, um, but which, you know, the, 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 they only, you're only going to get oil at $200, $300 a barrel if that comes with some kind of actual fundamental shock as well, I think. How about, uh, sabotage of Nord Stream One, would that count? Well, I I think I've actually alluded to this to you before. One of the reasons strategic analysts like me um, don't like war is because we become less relevant during wars because things don't always go according to plan. So forget about sabotage. What if one errant missile falls on the wrong pipeline at the wrong time and cuts things off? You think the Europeans are going to believe that it was just an accident, even if maybe it was an accident and they didn't mean to? It kind of sets things off. Um, war is really, really unpredictable in addition to being really hard. So all of those things are on the table. That could happen tomorrow. And all of the things that we're talking about could happen, not because anybody had any political plan to do so, but because it was just an accident, because that's what happens when people are firing missiles at each other in a kinetic environment. Um, so yeah, it, it's all possible. Um, but in, in that particular case, if something like that happened, I would I would assume um, that the Russians would actually try and cooperate with with people and make make it clear that, hey, we didn't do this. Um, and if that sounds crazy to people, keep in mind, we've mentioned the Iran nuclear deal a couple of times here. Russia's part of those those negotiations. They're going great. And like you said, like Russian Ukraine are still trading. Russian oil and natural gas is still in the market. If you're Pakistan, you just got a bunch of cheap Russian wheat. Um, you know, all these things are still happening. So that's why I say, like, don't you have to read everything out there, but you don't have to believe everything you read at the same time. And there is a narrative in European and Western and American media, some of which is truth, some of which is not truth, some of which is anger, some of which is fear. You kind of have to parse through all that and look at where things are actually going right now. And um, I won't tell you things are good, but things are not quite as bad as everybody I think is making them out to be yet. Bad in, ter in terms of the flow of commodities. Of course, if you're someone... Mm -hmm you know, who's calling for sanctions on energy, that it's bad because you do want, you do want the, the flow to stop. You're, you just think that the, the flow of energy, it's just so critical to Europe that it's, it's really not on the table. Yeah. I mean, I would challenge people who want full sanctions on energy the same way I would challenge people who want, um, you know, Europe or the United States to enforce a no fly zone or to actually fight on behalf of Ukraine. It's like, that's a perfectly justifiable position, but just realize what what that means. If you're full energy sanctions, that means you're taking taking away, you know, the source of almost half of Europe's energy production. How are you going to make up for that? I never hear that side of the argument from the people who want energy sanctions. Ditto that for the folks who are kind of shouting about no fly zones and and wanting to fight the Russians on the ground in Ukraine. Like, okay, like what happens when that escalates into a World War Three type scenario? Is that really what you're willing to go for? Um, so again, like the there's 
that's why I try and stay away from the hot take business to my own detriment. People who who have hot takes get more, no, they do. They get more clicks and they get more likes. They get more notice. Like that's not what I'm particularly interested in. I'm more interested in what's really happening. And what's really happening is you have Europe, which would love to cut Russia off tomorrow and can't because you can't cut off your two legs from underneath you um, just because you have a feeling about that Russia did something you don't like. Like that's not normally how politics works. All right, I'm going to throw a, a not a hot take at you, but a a, a a pitch at you that could be swung with with a hot take, which is what okay, about great. Venezuela? You know, Venezuela, uh, the the head of state there certainly done it some bad things to its own people. However, you know, Venezuela has not invaded Ukraine. Venezuela has is you know not invaded a neighbor. We have quite stringent, very stringent sanctions on Venezuelan oil, which is the most you know has the greatest, most ample oil reserves in, in the world. So. What about take uh, sanctions off Venezuela and, um, and Venezuela sends oil to, to Europe and then, you know, we impose then, then that will give Europe a surplus that it can impose sanctions uh, on energy to, to Russia. What about that? I mean, I like it. I, I feel like that. What, what was the what was the guy who commented with the funny name? Uh, I can't Party on dude. Name. By the way, party on dude says, thanks for raising my criticism. Um Oh, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. He, he said, he said party, he says, I, party on dude says, I am no longer disappointed. Congrats for answering the hard questions. <laughs> yeah, well, so, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, I'm glad we already made him happy, but I'll, I'll kind of go a step further, which is there are all kinds of anachronisms in American foreign policy that don't make any sense. You went to Venezuela, which is one of the top ones. Cuba is the biggest one. The, the United States has been treating Cuba the way that it has for, I mean, I guess it's because of domestic politics and because of how important Florida is and because the Cuban vote in Florida is very anti the regime there and nobody yes. wants to piss off Florida if we're getting very specific. Yeah. But U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba hasn't made sense for decades. And Cuba actually has some of the commodities that we're talking about um, that Russia doesn't. It, it, it could be kind of a very good place. Uh, I, I think nickel is the place that Cuba has a surprisingly high amount of reserves that could be useful in a situation like this. Ditto Venezuela. Yes, Venezuelan oil. If you had Venezuelan oil on the market and a functioning Venezuelan economy, we're not talking about this because we're actually probably talking about $20 barrel of oil because there's too much oil out there. Um, and you know, the flip side of your question is there are plenty of US allies that are also guilty of all sorts of terrible things. Saudi Arabia is the shining example. If we're going to talk about countries that are guilty of human rights abuses or that have done things that have not been in the U.S. interest, they're kind of top of the one on my list. But what do they have and what have they always had? A bunch of oil. <laughs> so they always get a pass from the United States and have since um, since Franklin Delano Roosevelt in, 19, in the 1940s and when that relationship came strong. Um, so th that was a little bit hot taking and rambling. But what, all, I'm, yeah. all I'm trying well, to I mean, say... I'll, I'll just add your hot take. I mean, talk about supporting democracies like Saudi Arabia is a monarchy... And the phrase Saudi is literally, it's the name of a family. That's like, Sopra you know, Soprano, New Jersey, you know, Saudi Arabia. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure Saudi dude will now come on and say that we're completely biased. I agree. I, I am biased. I don't like the, I don't like the inconsistency there uh, kind of in U.S. foreign policy. But that's why I, that's actually why I gravitate toward, uh, that's why I gravitate towards geopolitics, because you can leave all the ideology aside. I'm just trying to understand um, the behavior of states. Um, yes, if Biden was, if the Biden administration was more forward thinking, and I actually, I was wrong about this. I actually thought they were going to treat Latin America and Cuba and Venezuela in particular a little differently. They haven't. 
they really haven't changed much from the Trump administration's approach to both of those countries, whether that's for domestic political reasons or just because he's been distracted. I don't know. But one of the things that the U.S. is going to have to do is get its own backyard in order. And when you look at what's happening, you know, places like El Salvador, places like um, Honduras, uh, in Mexico, even like the United States is losing uh, Nicaragua is the big one, obviously, that has kind of flipped into authoritarian land as well. Um, in its own backyard, the United States is having a lot of trouble. So let alone that it's going to go fool around in Eastern Europe for a conflict that is really more important to the Europeans than it is to the Americans. But yes, if the United States um, had been forward thinking about all this, then what it should have done was it should have, you know, made amends with Venezuela and invested a lot of money in renewables and sent a lot of money to the Europeans for renewables so that, you know, they weren't so dependent on Russia for energy. Because if you didn't have this energy dependency, th that's the only thing um, sort of keeping Russia from the full weight of sanctions that we're talking about. So if you were a forward thinking either European or U.S. foreign policymaker, you would have circled this 20 years ago and you would have had plenty of time to to get away from the position that we're in right now. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think a, a big lesson of this is that not investing in oil is not the same thing as investing in green energy. You can't just not invest in oil and then not invest in not invest enough in sustainable renewables and then have an energy crisis and then be surprised when you know the price of oil is at 115 bucks. We got you know how quickly an hour goes by with you, Jacob. We got a question uh, from Ahmad Issa who says Ahmad Issa is not content to just, uh, you know, speculate in uh, uh, Russian stocks or the RSX, which is uh, uh, down, you know, I don't know, 80%. They're looking at Sparebank. Do we buy the sanctions banks? Uh, example, Sparebank. Too risky, but the asymmetry is tempting. And I just, just know I looked up at Sparebank a few months ago. It was at $20, dollar, US dollars, uh, ADR, American Depository Receipt. $20 and now it's at 52 cents. And I actually saw that trading was halted earlier this morning. So is that tempting? You know, is it, is it so far gone that, I mean, you know, you know, that would be a 40 X return if it returned to uh, where it was a few months ago. Yes. Um, this is not investment advice, but uh, yes. if, if, if Ahmad Issa wants to do that, you have more balls than me, man, go for <laughs> it. I, I would not be able to pull the trigger on that trade, no matter how nice the risk reward looks to me. <laughs> Got it. And thoughts on investing in Russia now? I mean, you know, the RSX is, is down so low. I mean, Gazprom, if you know, Gazprom does not use SWIFT. Russian energy has not really been sanctioned. Gazprom, according to Google Finance, is trading at a price to earnings ratio of about 0.7. So, you know, purely taking the sort of moral uh, uh, argument out of it, do you see investment opportunity in Russia? Or how are you evaluating the risk reward at this juncture? It's a better way to put it. Uh, for me, there's still, I mean, you said RSX, I believe it was at 612 or something on your chart. There's still room for it to go down. We're not even close to the end of this conflict yet. So it's not a, it's not a moral issue for me. Um, I think your timing's wrong. Like the Russians don't even have Kiev yet. Like they're just beginning to really bomb these cities. The situation is going to get worse before it gets better. I can absolutely concoct scenarios where Russian stocks um, are good investments. Um, probably the one that would be most favorable would be the palace coup scenario or even a grassroots kind of takedown of Putin and maybe Russia gets remade um, in some kind of friendlier version of itself. I mean, in that sort of scenario, if you bought now, I mean, you could 
that's sort of what the Germans have been dreaming about for literally over a century. They want Russia to be integrated into a European economic framework that helps the, the Germans make their economy that much stronger by taking advantage of all those commodities and all that cheap labor that they think they can find out there. So there are scenarios where an, an investment in Russia um, is absolutely brilliant. Um, I just think that if, if you're doing it right now, um, I, I just think there's a lot more there's a lot more of this war to come, to be frank and to be kind of, I don't know, uh, dour about it. Like, I, I just don't, I don't think we're anywhere close to the end of this conflict. And if we're not close to the end of this conflict, um, you know, I, I would be hesitant about, you're basically just playing the lottery then. You're, you're not actually making a decision there based on anything but pure luck. Because right now, um, all we know for certain is that it's going to be a rough week or two for Ukraine and the, the images and videos we're going to get out of Ukraine are going to get worse. Yeah. Um, well, Jacob, my, my, when you first had you on uh, nine days ago, I think you mentioned the phrase commodity doom loop and you said <laughs> that the prices of commodities would skyrocket. And so far, that is what has happened. It sounds like based on the base case that you just laid out, in that base case uh, where Russia takes over Ukraine in a, in a sort of bloody uh, a way that in no way uh, uh, takes sanctions off the table. If anything, the sanctions get more stringent, the condemnations get even stronger. In that scenario, it's very likely that the price of natural gas, oil, wheat um, go higher. So what is your evaluation at this juncture at 3.16 p.m. on March 3rd of the commodity doom loop? Uh, we're not in a loop right now. We're still kind of on the way up. Um, like I said, I've, I don't feel like I have enough data to be frank with you. Um, I see scenarios where we can go really high and then get in the doom loop. I can also see scenarios where things back away. I think the next two weeks are critical. Um, so I don't think it's really possible to come up with an answer right now. I think what you really have to do is identify those variables that are most important to you and keep track of them as much as you possibly can. And also keep your brain really, really nimble to how this situation might change because it could change on a dime. Um, in two weeks, we could be talking about, you know, how Russia took over Kyiv and how badly their operation started at first, but they've asserted control and now we're in a cold war. Or we could be talking about how Russia still seems incapable of, of, um, of communicating on the ground and getting its logistical supply lines to catch up with its military objectives. So once we have a little bit more clarity about the trajectory of where the military conflict goes, I can give you a more confident read. But right now, right now, I don't see doom loop. Right now, I see speculative frenzy and fear dominating the market. Mm, all right. Well, uh, Jacob Shapiro, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, you're, you're you can be found at Cognitive Investments, uh, Perch Perspective, as well as your, your monthly newsletter at um, Likeion. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Jack. Cheers.